If you open your Bibles to Romans uh, 15, cruising right along, just right, a couple more Sundays, and we're going to button up the book of Romans, which is amazing to me. I think John MacArthur went through it in three years, so, you know, we went through a little faster. From 2016 to 2022, I'm going to say easily the most contentious years inside and outside the church in my lifetime. Uh, And I almost hate to bring it up because uh, we're enjoying some reprieve from all of that tension and all of that difficulty. It was hard. Um, But nevertheless, uh, to introduce things this morning, I'll remind you of some of those difficulties. In 2016, we had a contentious election, followed by a George Floyd incident which prompted a response from BLM, which was followed by COVID, if you remember that little thing, which sparked debates about masks and vaccines and the legitimacy of social distancing, followed by a 2020 election, which prompted debates about the legitimacy of its outcomes and which then brought on an attack on the Capitol only to be followed by a contentious withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan, followed by many differing opinions and debates about how soon and how fully to re-engage in ordinary life after COVID conditions. And in the midst of all of that, there was a bacon shortage. (laughs) Just to lift the mood a little. But it was a brutal time. It was hard. It was a dark time. And um, again, I'm sort of sorry to bring this up because some people were legitimately uh, traumatized. And I mean that clinically. People, some people are dealing with trauma from that time. And uh, I think all of us experienced hurt, disappointment. Many of us had friendship groups that morphed. Uh, There were schisms even within family units. And some of those things have not returned to right yet. Uh, In all, it was, I would call it, six years of hell on earth. If I were a historian writing about that season of time, I think that's what I would call that. Uh, We had the Cuban Missile Crisis, and we had six years of hell on earth, right? That's kind of what that looked like. So it was a dark time. And it created, that darkness created an opportunity for the church to look very different in the world to show some brilliant light, to show some unity, to show some community in a world that was fractured. Unfortunately, the church looked very much like the world and its division. So I hate to bring all this up, but I do so to underscore our need for the passage that follows today from the Apostle Paul and for his instruction. This instruction about pursuing Christian unity isn't something that's just locked in the Jew-Gentile tension of the first century in Rome. These instructions are to them, but they're also through them to us as well, and they have something for us to learn. So today's message really continues uh, some with the theme of last week of how we are to, within the body of Christ especially, how we are to graciously 
accept one another in the body of Christ. And then more than that, our passage today really goes about how we cultivate this kind of unity. So Paul puts a few tools in our bag, so to speak. And the bullet, the top line up front, what I hope you would leave with today, if nothing else, is this. The pursuit of Christian unity requires Christ-like humility. That is the main tool that we see here, and that's what Paul expresses. So chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Uh, so our first point this morning is this. In the pursuit of Christian unity, Christ is our example. And that is such an easy thing to say, and you just nod, yeah, sure, okay, agree, can't disagree, of course, yes. So easy to say, so easy to take for granted. Um, I want to just say, praise God, we are incredibly blessed to have both the written word and the living word. That is an incredible blessing. So what I mean by this, first of all, we have a God who is not silent, aloof, non-communicative. We have a God who wants to be known. We have a God who has revealed himself to us. One of the first ways he does that, of course, is through creation itself, We can see from this created world and understand things that are true of God. We can see his power, his majesty, his grace, his mercy, his wisdom, his goodness. There are things about God that we can see from this creation that he has made. And then, of course, he speaks also through Moses. And we we have the Old Testament and we have the prophets. And so we have this not only this uh, revelation of the created world, but we have this written word where God conveys who he is, reveals his very nature, reveals who we are to him, how we rebelled, and how he is intent to bring us back to himself and rescue us in Christ. So we have this written word. Praise God for that. But then I'm so thankful that we also have the living word, that is, we have Jesus Christ. And he fleshes out, he lives out the life that God intends for us. He took on our frailties and he showed us what true humanity is to look like. And so we are not those who simply follow lists, but we are one who follows a person. We are incredibly blessed to have the revealed word of God and the living word of God. And I just, I praise God that it's not simply a list or just a bunch of words and commands and instructions. But we can always look to Jesus and say, how did this get fleshed out in him? How did he live? For there I find my instruction. And so obedience for us is not just a matter of keeping rules, but a matter of following the person, Jesus Christ. So as Paul, I need to give you a little bit of a warning here uh, as we go on. I'm going to spend about two-thirds of my time here in like the first point and a half, 
just so you don't go into panic mode. And then we're going to gallop to the end. So just you have that up front, so be patient. But as Paul really addresses the blended church of Rome, right, of Jews and Gentiles learning to worship together in Christian unity, he tells them and through them us, he says, look to the example of Jesus. Look to the living word. Uh, By the way, we too are a blended church, uh, and I want to just kind of show that to you a little bit and sort of delight in that. Um, We have many here who come from Christian homes, but we have many who don't come from Christian homes or a religious background. We have some who come who are are long-term steeped in Baptistic tradition, and we have many who come from other traditions. Uh, We have different ethnicities here, although I'll say we are not as ethnically diverse as I would like. I, I don't even understand how you do that or cultivate that. I wish we were more diverse than we are to better reflect every tribe and tongue and nation, as I think the true church really does. A friend of mine gives, uh, kind of gives us a, a little bit of a hard time when he refers to Bethel as white and uptight. And I, <laughs> maybe he could, could just be referring to me, too. It could just be about me. But thankfully, we do have a diversity of people, groups, and ethnicities. We have men and women. We have young and old. And I tell you what, you go to a lot of churches and you look across the room and too many churches are only gray hairs and there are no little ones. And we look across the room and we see gray hairs and bald heads and then even baby bald heads, right? We we got the full spectrum and I'm so thankful for that. Uh, We have blue collar and white collar. We have rich, middle class, poor, And we have the poorest of the poor, also known as college students, right? (laughs) Hang in there, guys. You're going to get there. So we're a blended church as well. It may not be as neat and tidy as Jew and Gentile, but we bring our differences and our backgrounds and our preferences together in a blended church. So whether it's the Romans in the first century or the Bethelonians in the 21st century, right? We are to look at the example of Christ and his posture towards others, his humility as we pursue Christian unity. And what do we learn from him? First of all, bear with the weaknesses of others. And I have to say, so I'm preaching out of the 2011 version of the NIV. That's my uh, preferred translation, particularly for preaching. Um, And I don't love... Uh, the way they have rendered some of these words here from the Greek to the English. Uh, particularly, I don't like the, word, the use of the word failings. I don't like that one. So there's the literal translation of the word weak here would be not strong. It's strong and then not strong. But because the NIV chose to use weakness, it's as though it looks for a different adjective to describe the not strong, and it opts for failings. So it translates... <laughs> Estenema, failings. And I think that kind of misses the point a little bit. If we're to use that word, here's at least how we should understand it. Uh, think of someone who's going to the gym. Okay, and if, you're, if you've ever been to the gym and you've done some workouts, you know, well, you're supposed to do a certain number of reps, usually 10, usually three sets of 10. And people sort of monkey with that a little bit, but you usually try to get to at least 10. There's another way of working out where it's called Uh, lifting to the point of failure or repping to the point of failure. So maybe you get to 10. You're like, I got more. 
And you do 11, and you do 12, 12 and a half, pushing, oh, one more 13. You finish on lucky 13, but you can't do any more after that. So you've lifted to the point of failure. But if we look at that, we shouldn't see that really as a failure. What we see is someone has gone to the end of their strength, the limit of their strength. And I think that's closer to the concept that's, that's at work here. It's the limited strength of one's faith, their limitation of their maturity. Uh, the New American Standard, I think, uh, translates this a little bit better where they say, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just to please ourselves. So in the same way that if you're at the gym with a workout partner, they're not going to ridicule you because you only got to, you know, they did 12 reps and you only did eight. They're going to encourage you. They're going to support you. They're going to spot you. They're going to accept you. They're going to help you continue to work out and encourage your development. Uh, Also, we need to look at these words, weak and strong, and and sort of get a little bit of a definition here, because what is Paul referring to? Who is weak and who is strong in, in this case? And it may not be as obvious as we think. So last week, we looked at weak, and we understood particularly in that chapter, which is continuing here, that the one who was weak was one who was living an unnecessarily restrictive life. That is, as they're moving, particularly the Jewish population, moving from the old covenant to the new covenant, but maybe uncomfortable with the grace that is found here and still sort of defaulting to the old rules and the old ways. This was described as the weak person. The strong person, then, is the person Uh, who was mature in their understanding of the grace and the mercy of God. So if I could just give you sort of a quick definition of the one who is strong, it is those who are growing in the grace uh, of God and knowledge of God our Savior. Growing in the grace and the knowledge of God. That is not just knowing the content of the gospel, but believing it really trusting in the grace of God, understanding that it's fully operational in their life, becoming increasingly aware of one's love and acceptance in Christ Jesus, increasingly understanding that his sacrifice has covered each and every sin for anyone who has turned to Jesus as a refuge. It's becoming immersed in his grace and his acceptance and his perfect love and his complete, full forgiveness. And that is the person who is strong or on the path to strength and to Christian maturity. Christian maturity isn't just measured by outcomes, by performances, and by doings. There are plenty of people who are doing more than Christians, but don't even have a personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian maturity is understanding our position in Christ, and from that and out of that come the doings and the imitation of Christ. So I think it's important to understand who is is weak and strong here in this passage so we can understand how we sort of come at one another with this. When we recognize our position in Christ, that we are loved unconditionally, accepted in him, forgiven and immersed in his grace and mercy poured out, it will change the way that we interact with other people. I love the words of Brennan Manning, a little bit of a controversial author, but a person who has had an encounter with the grace of God. He says, my deepest awareness of myself 
is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I have done nothing to earn or deserve it. That is the strong, the mature, the one who understands their position in Christ and therefore can bear with those who are not yet strong. Uh, And even that phrase, um, bear with, I don't love that one either. I'm really picky on the NIV today. I'm kind of a grouch, I guess. Because we might hear that, you know, you can think about making a phone call to some business and they put you on hold, customer service, and the messages come through and they say something like, bear with us, which is essentially a way of saying, excuse us. But this passage isn't just about tolerating someone else's weaknesses. It's more to coming to their aid and support. Shoulder up. Bear with them. Carry the load with them. Don't excuse them. Cancel them. Write them off. Dismiss them. Or just be whatever, non-judgmental. Bear with them. They're the burden that they are in. Or as Samwise Gamgee would say, share the load, right? So those who are truly strong and secure uh, in their faith understand their position in Christ. This leads to an others-mindedness to help others move away from legalism and performance-driven spirituality and to resting in the grace and the mercy of God and the forgiveness that comes from Jesus Christ. So bearing with or bearing the weaknesses of others. Secondly, being not self-centered. Um, when we see one who is weak in their faith, perhaps still struggling with legalism or performance-driven spirituality, we don't step on them. We don't step over them. We step beside them. We step beside them with grace. So the true imitator of Christ is one who prioritizes others' needs over my wants and desires. I can easily set down what matters to me because you matter to me more. And this really does follow in imitation of Jesus as we find in Mark 10. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is true humility, true humility. This causes me to recall what Tim Keller has said about humility. The late Tim Keller, Miss Pastor Timmy Kay. Um, thankful we have so much of his writing. But he has said this in his little book called um, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. I have it in your notes. He says, the thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself. It's an end to the thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stopped thinking about myself, the freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. I think that is a great description of humility because the person who just thinks lowly of themselves constantly is still self-preoccupied, and that's still a form of pride. True humility is prioritizing you, not me. 
Uh, so the truly strong Christian is he or she who has been forgiven much, knows that, lives in the grace and the mercy of God, and then therefore loves much, prioritizing others, even willing to set aside personal rights and liberties for the benefit of others. Verse two, each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. And there's a little bit of a bell should go off on your head, kind of like a, uh-oh, we just changed words. He uses the word neighbors. So this gets kind of interesting to me here. Uh, in the last chapter, and kind of bleeding into this one, Paul's primarily been talking about Christian unity within the church, within the blended church. And he's been talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. But now he throws in the word neighbors. In other words, he extends this way of gracious service, not just to within the walls of the church, but to the community at large. To the city around us, to the person next to us, to the co-worker as well. Neighbors is not just this person in the pew next to you. It's the person across the street from you. So Christian humility and Christian unity is not just something that happens inside the church, but this posture and imitation of Jesus goes outside the walls of the church to those who are not yet the church in hopes that they would become the church by God's grace. And so the principle, really, of Christ followers, their relationship with others, this humble service, not just limited here, it travels to our neighbors. I was just thinking of four categories. These are just... Eric's way of rummaging around in your life a little bit uh, and imagining how this might look in, with your neighbors. How about handle, how you handle uh, your resources, financial and otherwise, in your home? Do your neighbors understand you to be one who is generous and willing to share? Or what about your leadership, uh, your place where you work? Uh, whatever leadership capacity you have, is it done in a Christ-like manner? Are you a servant-hearted leader? What about your relationships, the kind of people that you seek out? Are you just seeking out the pretty and the popular or those who seem to agree consistently with you? There is no social climbing in Christianity. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Mark reminded us from chapter 12, we are to be willing to associate with those of low position. Or how about how you use your time? Are you generous with your time, giving of it for others' needs, or are you stingy and selfish with it? And I bring that one up because I was convicted about time. This is an area where I know myself to be selfish. I am stingy with my time. Um, I often don't want to go to the place or do the thing or make the call. Or uh, My favorite thing is like a half day of uh, uninterrupted time where nobody has expectations of me, right? I, I love hanging out with me. I, I am my favorite person. Uh, I like me a lot. And uh, that's the epitome of selfishness, right? Uh, turned inward, warped, turned inward on myself. I am that way. And one of the ways that this passage confronts me is just being willing to give my time to one that I don't want to. Uh, so that was the way I was personally convicted here. But the posture of the strong Christian is selfless service of others in the body of Christ, 
as well as with our neighbor. Uh, I think there's a warning here that you need to have. Um, We're not told to do this so that it will go well with us. Um, This doesn't mean that if we imitate Jesus in this way, Jesus who was gracious with the weak and the humble and the lowly, we find that he was actually ridiculed for doing so. They didn't make him a champion for doing so. They ridiculed him. Uh, Think about this. Uh, He was referred to by the religious elite as a friend of sinners and tax collectors. That was not a compliment. He was referred to as a glutton and a drunkard because of those with whom he associated. When he allowed the sinful woman to wash his feet and dry his feet with her hair, an incredibly intimate act, the Pharisees in the room scoffed. If he was a prophet, he would know better. When he healed the 10 with leprosy, one comes back and says thanks. The other nine bolt. So so my point is, imitation of Jesus in humble service, whether inside the church or to our neighbor in the community, is no guarantee that it will go well with us. In fact, we might expect the opposite. If the world persecuted Christ for his efforts and we look like him, we probably ought to expect some of the same treatment. So this isn't a do good, get good promise. It is a call to imitate your Lord and Savior because it's right. But heads up, it'll probably come back hard on you as well. So Paul was not sugarcoating this, right? And so, and sort of to prove that point, he goes back, he recalls this messianic psalm. The insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. And so Paul's point in recalling this psalm is that's right, the righteous endure suffering. The hatred and the persecution and the hostility that people have for God will fall on those who are faithful servants of God. That is the way it goes. But we are encouraged in that and we are given endurance in that. And that's our next point. We find encouragement from the scriptures. Thankfully, God has not left us without resource. This humble posture within the church and in the community is not mission impossible. It's mission possible, made possible by the strength and the endurance that he provides. And truly, one of the greatest resources to give us strength is that we would constantly be nourishing ourselves on his word. I'll ask you a question. When Paul refers to the scriptures that were written, what scriptures is he referring to? Old Testament, right? He's in the middle of penning the New Testament. It's not done yet. He's referring to that which was written, the Old Testament. And in particularly, uh, I, I think, and he quotes a lot of the Psalms, so, and as, does, um, as does Jesus. Uh, this reminded me of Uh, Tim Keller's habit with the Psalms. I don't know if you know this about him, uh, but Tim Keller made a resolution many years ago that he was going to read the book of Psalms every month. And so he would do that by reading five a day, five Psalms a day, every month, month after month, year after year. And he did it for almost 30 years. He didn't stop doing it. He just stopped being on earth, right? 
But that was his pattern. And he said the reason he did so was because he wanted to be steeped and saturated in the prayers that God had preserved for his people so that it would shape his heart and affections for God. Now, that should not be your only diet of the word. We need to study the other passages and the whole counsel of God's word. But it's fascinating that the Psalms are most often quoted by Jesus. And they are referred to by Keller as the prayer book of Jesus and a way for us to shape our hearts and our longings and our affections. So now we really transfer from Paul kind of is talking about neighbor, but now he sort of comes back to this selfless uh, posture within the church. Verse 5, and we're going to pick up speed and race to the end here. So I wanted to hit the front end of this heavy. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to, bring praise to God. So this might sort of be a, yeah, duh, Pastor Eric, got that one. The pursuit of Christian unity brings glory to God. But this, this is the purpose of it. It's not just so that we can go, yeah, hey, I've got good Christian friends. Nice. It's a Godward aim for his glory, for his praise. Uh, so that is the end result, not just pleasantness for us, but praise uh, for our God. And we are assured here that he gives endurance and encouragement. This is something he is doing, will do for us. And that is reassuring. So that this pursuit of Christian unity isn't just a matter of personal willpower and effort and self-sacrifices. Those are the ingredients. But we are assured that God bridges us and trusts us and supports us and empowers us to that end. We are to work for mutual acceptance. And I find this to be a really fascinating phrase here where he says, accept one another. In fact, this is in the present imperfect, which means continue accepting one another. Uh, sometimes the church, uh, Christian church can have its own sort of cancel culture. You disagree with me, you're out of my circle. And Paul is saying continue to accept one another. We should be able to accept a person with whom we don't necessarily agree on an issue because of our unity in Christ. Or I would say it this way, if your circle of friends is limited to those who agree with you, then you're likely missing this command. We should be able to separate out non-essential issues from the person themselves. We should be able to accept one another even if we disagree on secondary matters. Uh, I ran across this little quote years ago, and I've used it many times. I hope you won't mind it if it seems repetitive to you. But in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. And charity there is another word really for grace, the Greek word charis, grace. Verse 8, we'll bring this to a close here. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth so that the promises to the patriarchs might be confirmed and moreover that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. 
I will sing the praises of your name. Again, it says, rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. So I hope what you see Paul is doing is reaching back into all of these Old Testament passages and showing this has been the plan all along. God will keep his promises to Israel and he will have grace upon the Gentiles. And I think as we look at that, that should compel the Christian in pursuit of unity because of this gratitude. So whether you know, it's, it's a Jewish person or whether it's a Gentile person, they should look and say, God has kept his covenant even though we have been unfaithful. And God has been gracious to the Gentiles as he always promised And when we see the trustworthiness of our God, we should say, we ought to be incredibly grateful. We don't deserve to be in the family of God, not one of us. And by his grace and his mercy, we are. And we are being built together into one man, one body, one church. And so I'm going to close here. I love this phrase uh, by uh, C.S. Lewis. Uh, a guy whose quotes I love and books I almost never finish, but (laughs) he says this, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable in others because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. That is living from a position of grace and mercy and finding acceptance and flushing it out for the needs of others. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we have uh, one who is an example for us. We don't just find instruction, an instruction sheet. We find an illustrated sheet. We find one who pictures and portrays the life that you mean for us. Lord, thank you for the example of the blended church in Rome and all the things they were trying to work through to become one, to find unity together to give praise and glory to you. Lord, I pray that we, the blended church of the 21st century, would also have grace and mercy for others, recognizing how much has been extended to us in Christ. May we, as Paul says, accept one another and go on continually accepting one another, giving grace for differences and resting in our acceptance in Jesus. Thank you for his example. Help us to imitate it always, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.